Welcome back to another episode of Everything Aviation Podcast. I know it's been a while, it was Christmas since we last done a podcast, but we are back and we're back with a massive, massive guest. This guest is a Spitfire pilot, it's flown hurricanes. The amount of aircraft that this guy hasn't flown, you could probably put on the back of a postage stamp. It's LAA Chief Test Pilot Dan Griffith. Dan, how are we? Yeah, very good, thanks. Nice to uh, be here. I know we've been talking about it for a while and one way or another, it's, uh, it's always been a bit tricky, but uh, it's good to be here. It's great to have you here. Dan, I've, I've had a look at your kind of less resume for a better word. Um, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. But before we jump in and talk about what you've done, your passion and interest in aviation must have started somewhere. Where did that all begin for you? It, it's actually a very difficult thing, actually, because my father was um, army. So he was in the Second World War, Desert Rat, you know, with... Uh, Montgomery fighting Rommel, all that sort of stuff. Um, so I don't really know. The only, my vivid, first vivid memory of anything aviation was somewhere, and I don't know where, because I don't remember us going to air shows as a kid, but somewhere, uh, obviously my parents took me, and I remember this dark shape coming over the top of me, and then all of a sudden, tremendous noise and tremendous power as this thing almost went vertical uh, and I, I later now know that that was a Vulcan wow. so somehow somewhere when I was very young sort of eight nine whatever I, I was overflowing at very low level by this Vulcan who basically did the the standard Olympus sort of rotate above you and um, put the power on and away it went so that is my first memory of anything aviation so I, I don't know the answer <laughs> But it became an extreme passion. And, you know, going through school, it was quite interesting. Um, and I couldn't ever see me doing anything else, which was good in many respects, because it gave me something, you know, as a lad, obviously all lads like sort of messing around and playing, but it, it allowed me to focus sufficiently to get the qualifications that I needed to go on and do something, which uh, I felt with hindsight, I feel quite lucky because I went to a very big thousand kid comprehensive school um and i'll give you a little story out of that i, I obviously as i said i decided at the age of 12 13 that this was the only thing i was going to do and i went into sixth form and i um the, the sixth form was at the same school and i remember going into the careers meeting with the the lady that uh, was our resident careers person and and there was this glass office in the sixth form where we went in and had our interviews and i went in and um she said to me, okay, Dan, what do you want to do? So I said, oh, I want to be a pilot in, in the Air Force. And she said, oh, no, no, no. She said, uh, that's, just, that's just extreme. That's ridiculous. Don't, don't even think about that. We never had anybody going from the school in to become an officer in the military, never mind a pilot. She said, you know, just forget that. If you really, really wanted to push for something in the Air Force, you know, study your sciences, blah, 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 and try and become an engineer. I said, no, 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 no. I want to become, you know, a pilot. And she continually said no 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 and in the end I got up in a fit of rage and slammed the door in front of the whole rest of the sixth form and this whole glass office went mad and almost broke so then I, I left and uh, carried on and then my amazingly my wife was at the same school um, and her sister who was four years younger was also at the same school and so I went on and obviously, obviously I got my um, A-levels and things. And so about a year later, I signed on the dotted line 
for the Air Force to get uh, a university cadetship and also signed a way to become a pilot in the future, as long as I pass, etc. Um, and later, four years later, with my wife's sister was going through, this same careers lady was using me as an example of something you actually can go and do if you want to go and do it. So the whole tables had been turned, which was fantastic. So that's my story. In fact, I've got one more story as well, uh, just while we're talking about it. I then, in the same sort of period when she was telling me how terrible this was uh, of an idea, I also went for an Air Force, uh, an Air Force, a, a flying scholarship. And I actually went to Cywell because um, we lived in Northamptonshire. And I went to, to try and get a PPL scholarship because I thought that'd be very good, obviously, for me uh, going into the Air Force. And I turned up at, at Cywell and they interviewed me and this and that and the other. And they sent me a, a sorry, dear John type of letter. You haven't got it. And they used on there that um, it appeared that I wasn't really interested in aviation. And I was just uh, trying to, to find something else to do. So there you are. Here we are 40 years later and I'm not very interested in aviation. I can tell. Judging by what I googled earlier, definitely not interested at all. <laughs> I'm hoping that um, that selection board has, has been in contact since, and you were able to show them exactly how interested you were. It's amazing, really, isn't it? Amazing. But there you go. There you go. What fun, eh? What fun. Oh, it's brilliant. And how long was it when you signed that dotted line um, till you actually got your hands on a jet provost? I think you started off on the jet provost, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, I did. Um, it took because I went to university with the Air Force. So it took a good three and a half years since I signed because my first I went to uh, London um, Queen Mary to study aeronautical engineering, which was another mistake, really. Uh, it sounds very strange to say that. But the Air Force, really, all they wanted was somebody to learn to a degree level, actually, to get this officer cadetship. And, and whether you did aeronautical engineering or whether you did, like a friend of mine did at Edinburgh, he did brewing sciences. Now, the advantage of brewing sciences is all pilots drink a lot. So that's the first thing. So you've got brewing sciences. And secondly, he was working like one day a week and I was working five days a week. And we both came out with the same degree, but and we both got into the Air Force in the same way. So it made no difference. But he obviously had a degree that took him one day a week and he drank heavily. And I had a degree that to work. So that was just, that was a bit of, uh, of stupidity on my part, <laughs> thinking that that's what they would want. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was quite interesting as well. That's brilliant. So, yes, it, took, it took three and a half years, took three and a half years. And I, by going to university, it, it was very good, very good grounding, actually, because it meant you could go into the uh, university um, air cadet type of scenario. So I went to um, University of London Air Squadron at... Abingdon and flew the Bulldog. So it meant that by the time I came into the into the JP, there was there was a couple of things there. First of all, I was three years older. So um, you take things more seriously, of course, as you age. And it, if I'd have gone there at 18, I don't know whether I'd have been as serious. So that was the first thing. But secondly, I had about 150 hours on Bulldogs by then. So I knew how to fly and I, I got over my difficulties, if you will, that you have when you first learn to fly. Now, when you first go into the JP world as a direct entrant, of course, you haven't got time to mess up, if you will, like you've got on, the, on a university air squadron. Yeah. So I think, I think you've got a better position, a better placing to be able to have gone through university 
three years in, in pseudo Air Force life, going to the university air squadron and going to camps and things like this. And also being able to learn to fly in a relatively low key environment. It's almost as if it was prepping you for, for the life that you were about to, to go into. Exactly. And it really was very good from that perspective because um, I knew how to behave. I knew what the Air Force was expecting. So even things that uh, most people have trouble with, like discipline and all of that. So I'm not saying I'm a very disciplined uh, sort of person. I don't take discipline too well, but at least I knew how to pretend, if nothing else, um, to get through things. And of course, when you're an 18 year old, that's a bit more tricky. Whereas when you're 21 and you've had this slow, this slow working, if you will, to it. Um, I think that helped tremendously, tremendously. And it was great fun as well. The University Escort was great fun. And I, I, I still keep in touch with a lot of friends from those days, which is bizarre. So 40 years on, here we are, you know, I'm still there. And I still ha have dealings with people that were on my University Escort. Wow. Which again, it's like a family. It is. It is. It's quite interesting. Quite interesting. That's brilliant. And um, so what, what was described the feeling then as well? Because you, you're 21 years old. You're giving one of the, the best jets the RAF had at the time. You're sat there in the left seat by yourself. What's that feeling like when you slam that throttle forward? Well, it, it, again, it, all these things, I, I don't know. <laughs> I sort of go through my aviation life in, in total amazement a lot of times. And... Um, the very first time I, I flew the, the jet price on my own was out of Barton Heath. And um, Barton Heath was the relief landing ground for Cranwell. So we used to go to Barton Heath to do circuit work because it was um, uh, less busy than Cranwell was. So on this particular day, we, my instructor said, right, we're, we're off to do some circuits at Cranwell, uh, to Barton Heath. So I said, great, uh, off we go. And then we did a couple of circuits or three circuits. And then we landed and he said, right, taxi up there. And so I taxied up there. And he said, right, that's it, I'm out. And I, I had this sort of impression that I'd failed. And it was like, that was the end of it. And uh, oh God, what have I done? And, and he, he literally got out and started doing the seat. And I'm thinking, what's happening now? And he then said, right, you're off on your own. So I didn't really, I didn't really have any time because it was so amazing. I was so amazed that he was letting me go on my own, that I didn't really know what to do. And uh, I eventually got to the runway and eventually got airborne and eventually got it back. But it's all a blur because I don't really remember it because it was, my brain wasn't ready for it. And uh, I wasn't prepared. I wasn't mentally prepared, which was, which was probably the best way actually, because you just got on and did it. And I just went on and did, did what he said. But I, I later had um, sort of a more interesting first solo when I eventually, We'll come on to our space age. When I eventually got onto the Harrier Force, and um, when you do the Harrier conversion, you do two dual trips for about forty minutes in a two-seater, and then you're let off in a single-seater. Now, this was in GR three days and T four days, and the thing about the GR three and the T four is the GR three significantly lighter because obviously it hasn't got all this extra cockpit, extra big tailplane, all this sort of stuff. So it's much much lighter. And obviously it's got the same engine. Now, when you do your first solo in the Harrier, they only partially fill the uh, petrol tank. So you've only got half the fuel or 40% fuel, and you've got a significantly lighter, about 40% lighter airplane. And I remember it vividly because I'm off in this GR3 and I'm sitting there. And the first thing I, re I remember 
as I, I got to the holding point, ready to take off. This was at Wittering. And um, I'm sitting there and I'm rocking like this. And I'm just, I don't remember that. And it, well, it doesn't happen in the two-seater. And I'm sitting there and I think, God, I wonder if this is right. Because nobody, there's no real briefing. You only fly these little, little bits. And I'm sitting there. I'll bugger it. I'm going to go anyway. And so, so I lined up. And then the next problem was all this, all this thrust and this thrust to weight ratio because you've got a much lighter airplane and you've got the same thrust. So it goes off like a scolded cat. Now, the big thing, the big thing about the students was that you weren't allowed to bring the throttle back until you'd got the gear up. That was like a, you know, that was like a, uh, an initiation thing if you if you didn't manage that you'd failed in, in you know you'd be ribbed you'd be ribbed for the rest of your life yeah. so but the trouble with it is the the harrier has a um a speed limit of 300 knots with the gear down but only 250 knots to bring the gear up so if you go past 250 knots you can still fly with it down but you can't bring it up mm. so you have to slow down below 250 knots and then you can bring it up great so of course you're putting full power on and you're going off absolutely like a scold. It's the most accelerating airplane I have ever been in in my life. And you goes off and you get and you lift off. And of course now instantly you're above 250 knots. So you're pulling and pulling and pulling to try and get the speed back because you're not allowed to bring the throttle back because that would be, you know, you'd have failed your initiation. So you then, so now you're just pulling and pulling and pulling until you get the, get the uh, speed low enough to get the gear down. Now, I didn't get the speed lower until 10,000 feet. Whoa! <laughs> now, other people, there was one, the record was 18,000 feet. Whoa! But, you but guys just it, sat on your tail, just going straight up. Still tail going up, going up like a dingbat. So, so I do remember that one very, very, very vividly. So, uh, yeah, there's my, uh, there's my solos. Great That's fun. Brilliant. Uh, what a story as well. I didn't realise it was like they had initiations at the squadrons and stuff. That, that was well, like it that. was one of, those sort of, one of those unofficial things with the students. And, you know, it was like in, in the bar, you'd, obviously you'd, you'd, you'd probably get a yard of ale that evening to drink because obviously you've done your first solo. And um, if you're in, in the bar and you said you'd pull the throttle back before you got the gear up, God, that would have been, that would have been the worst thing you could have actually said. <laughs> Whilst drinking your yard of ale, which was also very difficult. Actually, that was just as difficult as drinking the, uh, as flying the aeroplane, really. <laughs> you can make it like, lie on your back and do it as if you were climbing in, in the Harrier trying to exactly. speed up. Exactly. <laughs> and after the JP, you then went on to, to fly Hawks. Was being such a yeah. new aircraft at the time, was it much of a kind of a thing to get your head round to get into, into a Hawk? Um, the Hawk actually is a little bit of an embarrassing phase of mine, the, the, um, the wings part of the Hawk, i.e. Valley, because I was flying the JP-5, which was a 400-knot aeroplane, and the Hawk wasn't much faster, really. So, um, and you basically redid the whole course that you'd just done at, at uh, Cranwell at, at Valley. And um, that, unfortunately... This is where immaturity comes in. That then is good job. I wasn't eighteen. I was sort of twenty-two by then, or whatever. Um, because that point, I was bored, and I was, you know, I was thinking, "Blimey, this is nothing new. I've just done all of this." And I got into a bit of a uh, an attitude problem. And um, my 
my uh, flight commander was a guy called Mark Zipfel, who was a lightning pilot, and he was really, really good. And um, he actually saved my Air Force career because I had gone into this attitude issue and I was getting close to being chopped, for sure, for attitude, not for ability, for attitude. And uh, Zippy called me into his office one day and he said, Dan, you are really getting up in here, you know, swearing at me. He said, um, if you don't wind your neck in and just get on and do it, they're going to chop you. And that would be a real shame. He said, just knuckle down, put your head down, do it. Because when you get to tactical weapons, which was Chivana for me, he said, you'll love it because it's, it really is much more difficult. It's much more exciting. It, you know, they assume you fly the airplane, that you can do that. Now it's all about operating. He said, you will love it when you get to Wittering. So buckle down and get on with it. And that was great advice. And, and I did exactly that. And I got sent down to uh, tactical weapons. So, so the Hawk for me, that starting of the Hawk, although yes, it was uh, the sort of the new, one of the new airplanes in, it, it's such an easy airplane to fly. And actually it was so much easier than the JP in many respects, because it was really a modern airplane. Yeah. Whereas the JP was still quite an old airplane. So I, I, I didn't really have enough to pushing me to make me interested in. And the trouble is with, with me, and, and I suppose a lot of guys, is they need things to keep them interested, otherwise they get bored and then they sort of go off the rails and that's what I did. So then, you, I, you know, I went down to tactical weapons and of course that all of a sudden was fantastic because now I was learning something completely new. I was learning, you know, how to operate to flight at low level well, to drop bombs, to do this, to do that. And I was being pushed and pushed and pushed. And I, I had a fantastic tactical weapons. I, I won best student, best bomber, you know, best wow. everything really, which was great. I'm not, not necessarily skilled in, but just because I was really interested. Yeah. And so I went from this thing at, at Valley where I was nearly chopped and I had, to, you had to do well. And another of my failings was coming to me. You had to do well at um, Chivener because there was the place that they were going to decide which aircraft you were then going to subsequently fly. So if you did poorly at Chivener, you could have gone, loads of people are going to tell me off this but you could have gone Canberra's or you could have gone Hercules or you could have gone something when I didn't want to do that I wanted I knew I wanted them for Harris so um it was very important Chibna was very important to me and one of my problems one of my um I suppose bad traits is I, I tend up until then because going into the into the sort of flying side was all about the final end for me that's what i wanted to do so everything running up to that i always um just did enough to get to the next stage if you know what i mean so yeah. I, I i'm I, again i'm that's one of my sort of poor sides is if it's not something i'm particularly interested in i will do sufficient to to get what i need and that was the trouble with valley i was trying to do just sufficient whereas when i got to chivana i had to do the best i possibly could because there was only, a, you know, the odd Harrier slot going every couple of courses. So it was, it, it was an extreme thing anyway. It was unlikely that I was going to get it. And if I didn't do really well there, I would definitely not have got it. So it was incentive. It was big incentivization. And uh, Zippy, bless him, really saved my, my Air Force career. Wow. Wow. Mm. Wow. I didn't realize as well that you didn't actually have your full RAF wings coming after Jeff Ravis on, onto the Hawk. No, no. Uh, in the old days, um, you used to get your wings at, after Jet Provost, but one when I went through, you didn't get your wings until you'd gone to Valley. 
wow. So you, you did the Valley course. As I say, and that, the trouble was, that was the problem because of duplication almost. I would have almost been better gone straight to tactical weapons. Mm. Other than it was more experience again. And, 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 and as you know, everything in aviation is all about experience. Yeah. And to be honest, I, I probably was being unfair to the Valley course because, again, it was more experience. And the trouble with all of this stuff is, is it takes you quite a long time to get enough experience to be able to go on to the next stage. And, and the Air Force are very good at it. They know what people need. They know what levels of experience people need. They know how much flying they need. They know this, that, and either for the normal person to be able to go through the system. And the same in the civilian world, actually, you know, that people know it's been done for a long time, so it's nothing new. Yeah. And of course, when you're a youngster, you, you want to get there quicker, don't you? And, yeah, you want everything um, done yesterday. You want everything done yesterday. And I, I was in that mode. And at Valley, I was definitely in that mode. Um, and Valley was good kicking for me because it taught me that you can't short circuit the system. And if you want to do well in aviation, you have to put the effort in. And uh, that has really has characterized my career is I, I, I do work bloody hard really in yeah. the aviation side of things. And it's the only thing I work hard in really to some extent. Um, but I do put the effort in where that's involved. And it, it's clear to see from, from the stuff we, we'll, we'll go on to talk about. Um, and definitely take my hat off to you, especially when you admit as yourself that you had you had problems and it was your own fault, but you managed to turn that around and now look, um, which is really, really cool. And did you, you came, I take it you said you're looking for a Harrier slot. I take it that you ended up flying the Harriers because you got that slot straight out of the tactical weapons. Yes, um, I was very lucky. There was a Harrier slot and um, I went to Wittering. Again, I was going through the time where there was lots of um, holding between courses because there weren't that many courses. And um, it, my, my early career was characterized by a six month or an eight month or a nine month hold between each courses. So I held after I got my wings at Valley before I went to tactical weapons. I held after tactical weapons before I went to, to Wittering, which again, it's amazing how these things dovetail in because, because of that, a lot of the things I subsequently did came. And I'll, I'll tell you for why, because most people, when they finished Valley, what they wanted to do was, was go to a, a fast jet squadron, you know, and there they became, you know, the boy for a job. But in return, they would get a backseat ride every so often in a Jaguar or a Harrier or whatever it was. So most people, when they were asked, what do they want to go and do for their six months? I had a nine month hold, I think, between... Wow. Um, between Valley and Chivener. And they asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I, I want to go to an air experience flight and fly chipmunks. Oh. And they, they just looked at me gone out because nobody had ever asked for that. And, and I said, no, no, that's what I want to do. And they said, well, don't you want to go to a Jaguar squadron house? I said, no, no, I'm going to be doing that for the rest of my life, hopefully. Uh, what I want to do is I want to go to, to, to an air experience flight. So in the end, bless them, they, they accepted that. And I went down to Manston. And I flew down there with a very, very, very nice, proper old school Air Force guy called Peter Stonham. He was a squadron leader and he was from the old days. He, you know, he was probably from the sort of Kaiser environment, really. That's where he should have really been born. Fantastic, fantastic bloke. And um, he, he really helped me because he would prioritise me over some of the uh, volunteer guys, you know, because air experience flights, particularly Manston, when air marshals and air vice 
marshals and people like that went to a ground job in London, they used to go at weekends and keep flying on the chipmunks. So oh, they'd really? come in as a first officer. Yeah, they'd come in as a first officer VR, volunteer reserve, whereas actually they were an arm, air, air marshal in real life. <laughs> and so it was quite interesting. So it had two effects for me. First of all, I got to know some very, very senior officers uh, in a almost social environment. So, I, and I, I could call them, you know, if in my real life, I could call them if I needed to. So that was very good and actually helped me a few other things later on, in, not in from a career point of view, but from a point of view of wanting to do things within the Air Force. So that was very good. Uh, but the other side of it was, it meant that I could very quickly get cleared to fly P1 solo. And then I was flying the cadets, you know, going doing a, a aerobatics and all sorts of things. But what it meant was, uh, after I, I held there, um, as I say, after Valley, and then when I finished Chivna, I also went back and held. So I, I held for about 15 months in total. Wow. And I got a couple hundred hours on chipmunks, um, P1. So now we, we fast forward into me going onto the squadron, onto the uh, Harrier squadron. So I went through Wittering, got through that uh, uh, reasonably well, and went onto one squadron. And in the squadrons, you, a bit like in the civilian world, you have instrument ratings and different levels of instrument ratings, unlike a little bit, or I suppose you, you do to some extent, but unlike the, the civilian world. So we had, we had a white rating, then we had an amber, I think, and then we had a green rating. And those different things allowed you, you had different minima, depending on whether you're white or amber or green rated. Green rated, you could use the full, the full instrument uh, minima. If you were amber or white, you'd have to add 50 feet or 100 feet or 200 feet, whatever it was. I can't remember the exact increments, but it, you add. Now, you, could, you couldn't become a green rated instrument pilot until you had 400 hours P1. Now, of course, I had 200 hours P1 chipmunk. So, so this allowed me, even though I was flying Harriers, this allowed me to get an instrument rating effectively a year early because I had 200 hours P1 Harrier and I had 200 hours P1 chipmunk and I was, so I had 400 hours. So I could get Brilliant. my instrument rating. So I had my full green rating a year earlier than I would have done. So that was the first real benefit of it. Well, second, I suppose, knowing these air marshals. And then the third benefit was later, of course, and actually I carried on flying chipmunks. Even, even when I was on the squadron, I used to spend weekends, go back, and even when I was posted to Germany, because we um, used to fly back to the UK because you couldn't fly below a thousand feet in Germany when I was flying in Germany. So we'd always fly back to the UK, do some low level, then fly back, or land somewhere, fill up, and then fly back, do a reverse. So on, any, on a weekend, if we were coming in on a Friday, we would do this, and then I'd land at Manston, and then I'd refuel at Manston, stay the weekend at Manston, and then meet them on the Monday. So it was saving the, the Queen money, because I wasn't flying all the way back to Germany, but I was staying at Manston and flying the chipmunk for the weekend. So I carried on doing it forever. So by the time we now fast forward up into sort of my, I suppose, fun side that we've talked about on a few occasions and flying warbirds and tail dragger airplanes. Well, when I first got into that, I had 200 hours on, on chipmunks. <laughs> so all of a sudden I had 200 hours tail dragger time, wow. which I'd have never got if I'd have been a normal pilot in the Air Force. And so consequently, it opened those doors as well. So this wow. little chipmunk was phenomenally, it, it transpired, was phenomenally important for my life going forward, which was uh, amazing, really. 
That's really, it's such a good story. And I imagine as well, so say the guys, if they were going off to, um, I don't know, a Jaguar squadron, say, sat at a desk and every so often they get a back seat ride. They weren't doing yeah. as, still as much flying as you were. No, nowhere near it. So nowhere there was no skill I mean, they, they, There was no, there was no, exactly. And they, they probably got in there six months. They might've got three, three backseat Jaguar rides perhaps. But, but what does that tell you really? That it's not developing you in any way. It was the chipmunk, strangely, because I was flying myself and I, yeah, we were flying cadets and doing, you know, but I had to do navigation. We had to do this, we had to do that. We had to think about fuel. You had to think about airspace. You had to think about all those things just like you do flying any aeroplane. So those extra hours were again, more development. And uh, the, the thing that I've learned about the aviation world, and, and again, we've talked about this before, is it doesn't matter what you do, it always adds something to your knowledge. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you fly, where you go, who you speak with, there's always something. I mean, I, I'm, I've started going, as you know, to Spanho quite a lot. And they're a great bunch up there. And the, the amount I've learned on different things is amazing because you pick up, you know, if, if the engine is doing this, because they're more engineers. So if they're doing this, that might be that. And you go, oh, actually, I didn't really know that. Or whatever it may be. Or you fly some new type and it's, it's, it's been difficult for you. So you've learned to cope with it, et cetera. So you, the, that's the beauty of aviation from, from, from two perspectives. First of all, everything you do, flying wise is testing you it's always something different every time doesn't matter if it's the airplane that's different or whether it's the environment that's different there's always something different so that's the first thing and then the second thing is you're always meeting different and interesting people that are like-minded and you know what pilots are like you get two pilots together they'll talk for hours yeah <laughs> you know especially if you put a beer in the hand i mean two pilots a beer and that's it you, you might as well spend the whole evening that's gone which uh, much to the chagrin of my wife, of course, because that's what we ever talk about when I get next to uh, some pilots. But <laughs> she's got it's used to it now after 40 odd years. It's the same with my other half. When we go down to the airfield, I get a brief from the other car and it's like, right, we're going flying. We're not going to talk too much. We're just going to get in the airplane and we're going to go flying. And I go, okay. And then it never ends up like that in the end. No, no. And, and, and if it did, you want to get out. Because yeah. <laughs> it means it's all changed. You know, if that ever happened like that, there was something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a point there. <laughs> and then, so you've already done some really cool stuff. So you, you've flown the Harrier. At what point are you thinking, I'm bored, I want to test these things out? And then you went um, to test pilot school. I, I, was never, I suppose I was never really bored per se with the, the flying of the aeroplane. Um, or in, in, in fact, the operation in itself, the operation was, was extremely exciting at the Harrier, especially when, when I was doing it, because we were still flying off roads, we we're still flying off grass, we we're still flying <laughs> off Mexi strips, you know, landing on a Mexi pad in the woods and all this sort of stuff. So it was really exciting stuff. But the, the thing that was getting, I suppose, um, different was, I, I thought to myself, do I, I've done it for four or so years. Do I want to carry on doing this forever? And in my mind, um, I've always been somebody that wants to do something new, wants to build that experience we're talking about, build that little bit of extra knowledge, build this, build that, build the other. So I need a continual, uh, I'm afraid, um, subject matter that's going to test me. And yes, the, 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 
flying in the Harry Force was extremely demanding. A lot of people killed themselves. Um, you had to be on your game all the time because especially operating in and out of the field, as we used to call it, was, was very life-threatening if you got it wrong. And so it was very demanding. But after four years or so, I, I got to the feeling that what I was really passionate about was flying aeroplanes. That's what I really wanted. And it didn't matter, unlike most of the people in the Harry Force, because again, when I was flying, the, going back and flying the chipmunks, a lot of people in the bar, um, when I was back with the, with the squadron, would say, why on earth are you going to go and fly the chipmunk? You know, you're flying the best aircraft in the world. Why are you going to fly the chipmunk? And I'd say, well, any aeroplane is the best aircraft in the world as far as, far as I'm concerned. I don't mind what I'm flying, whether I'm flying a Harrier, whether I'm flying a chipmunk, or whether I'm flying whatever it may be, some home build. It doesn't make a difference. Um, the important thing to me is, is flying. So I, I'm, I was more of a pure aviator, I suppose. So to me, the thing that was the next level was going into the test pilot world. And I remember I, I put the application in because they, in, in the Air Force, you needed to prove that you really wanted to do it. And you, so you normally applied for two or three years and then after you've proven that you really wanted to do it, then you, you get the course sort of year two or three of application. So I applied probably a year earlier than I would have liked to because that was the advice I was given. Yeah. And I remember my squadron boss, he gave me, he, he, he brought me to the office and he said, he said, you do realise that you will ruin your career in the Air Force by going to the test pilot world? Because unlike the Americans, the Americans look at the test pilot world as the next level and they, they sort of, they treat them like heroes, it's quite amazing in America. Whereas the Brits, the Brits' general mentality is little, little um, sort of um, elite groups. They, they sort of, the Brits don't like that. They're, they're not, yeah. you know, our mentality is, oh, you know. So if I wanted to carry on and become an air marshal, he was telling me that the best way for me to become an air marshal was to be, to stay in the Harry Force. But the Harry Force was one of those um, forces where people accelerated, you know, in rank because it was thought of as a very good force. It was so, you know, you, be, you become a squad leader quickly, you become a wing commander quickly, you get a squadron quickly, and, you know, you then get a station and, and then you become an air marshal or something, or an air vice marshal, air marshal. And so he said to me, you're going to ruin your career. So that's the first thing he said. And the second thing he said, you do realise you'll never know in the test world, you'll never know an aeroplane as well as you know the Harrier because you'll never fly it for so many hours. Because the thing about the test world is you'll get in an aeroplane, fly it for an hour, test it, yes, then you'll be in the next aeroplane, then the next aeroplane. You never fly the same aeroplane regularly because that's not the test pilot world. That's, you know, that's the, the squadron or in civilian life, the airline world or the flight instructor world or whatever. It's not the test pilot world. And I said, well, that's what, that's what intrigues me. He said, as long as you understand where you are, and he, again, he was a really good boss, and uh, so he let me go. So I put my application in, and um, I wanted to go actually to France because I felt one of my weaknesses was I wasn't um, very good at language. I hadn't really studied that school because I you know, had this sort of focus on science. And, and I, I liked the idea of getting a bit more language. So I wanted to go to, to EPNA, to the French school. And um, anyway, they, I went through the interview process um, and I eventually found out that I've got in. I thought, hmm. So I went down for my interview uh, our pre sort of post interview side and uh, to see what I, where I was going and when I was starting and they said yeah you're going abroad like, fantastic Edna they said no 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 you're going to Edwards wow Edwards 
I didn't even know about Edwards. Edwards, what? Uh, and I admit, you had to learn a new language to go to, to Edwards because the Americans don't speak in English, as we know. So, so that, it wasn't the language, but it wasn't, it wasn't the language I was expecting. So, um, so yes, that's why that's that's the way it went. And uh, uh, the reason why I got in that year was because every, people we only sent somebody to Edwards every three years. We sent somebody to Etna every year, and we sent somebody to Pax River every year, and they sent you know, an American Navy pilot, and they sent a French pilot to, to Empire. Um, but every third year, we sent somebody to Edwards, and they sent a, a USAF pilot to, to Boscombe. And it was the year that I applied, the following year, they needed somebody to go. And the, the guy that went previously, um, great chap, he was a Hercules pilot and a non-graduate. Now, the Edwards course was extremely academic because it was all to do with space, and so it was a lot of... A lot of extreme mass, and it was all fast jet oriented, and it because it was all geared to, to go into space. And so when he he finished, he he nearly didn't pass. And when he was he had his exit interview, he said, "I recommend that this has to be a fast jet guy and a graduate, an engineering graduate, because you need that capability." So this is where my brewing sciences versus aeronautical probably did pay off in the end. So. And on my entrance, I was the only fast jet graduate that applied that year. So whereas normally I'd been taking two or three years to get in, they had to take me because I was the only one. So, so I got in by luck. And I think, I think there's a lot to be said for luck, actually, because I, 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 I quote this quite a lot. I think you've got to be, you've got to have a modicum of luck. You've got to be in the right place at the right time. And, and a lot of people throughout my career said, you've been really lucky to do that. And I don't personally agree with that sentiment because I say to people, yes, you do have to have a bit of luck, but you have to be well prepared so that when you get that bit of luck, you can take that opportunity. Because if you, like the chipmunk, for example, if I hadn't applied chipmunk, the first time I was asked to fly a Spitfire, I wouldn't have been able to do that because I wouldn't have had any tail dragger time and so on and so on. And so, this um, going to Edwards is a bit like that, really. I, I just positioned in the right place, but at least I had the right background and the right experience to do it. Yeah, that's. I agree with that. My dad always says as well. He's like, you make your own look in this world, and it's like you, you said, do. you've got to make that's yourself it. nice, shiny, and presentable. And then when that window of yeah. opportunity opens, you're ready to just fly through it. Well, Nick Faldo summed it up, and and um, you know the golfer Nick Faldo. Do, do you remember Nick Faldo? He it must be twenty or twenty five years ago. He won. The American Open, and it was the first time a Brit had won the American Open for years and years and years and years. And uh, it, on his last, on hole eighteen, he got a an eagle or whatever it's you know when you're two under rather than a bird, yeah. it's one under. He got two under on the last shot to win by one. And he was being interviewed on American TV because they were really upset that he'd won. And um, they said. They, they were goading him about this. And, and they eventually said, you've got to admit though, Nick, you were really, really lucky to have got that eagle on the last hole of the day and win by one point. He said, yeah. He said, yeah, I totally agree with you. I was really lucky to get that eagle. And he said, but it's interesting. The more I practice, the luckier I get. I've heard that before, actually. I think I heard that from my dad. <laughs> yeah. And that stuck with me. And that, that actually, I, I live my life a little bit like that. <laughs>
love it. I, thought, so, I, yeah. I need to remember that one. It's only when you, you said it there, I was like, oh, I've heard this before. <laughs> and then it's it's amazing, like, isn't it? How, how, you go, how you go through life and how different people influence you through life. It's yeah. quite, uh, quite yeah. bizarre. It's it's mad. It's someone sometimes some of the people you wouldn't even expect either until it's a couple of years yeah. down the line. You think, oh wow, yeah, they did that. They did do that. Yeah. Well, I'm not a golfing person, but Nick Faldo has changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I wonder, like, if he if he ever knew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and you, you said that like, it took a lot of kind of capacity with extreme mats and fast jet stuff and everything. I've got a list here of some of the stuff that, that you flew uh, while you were at Edwards. And you were looking at F-15s, F-16s, F-18s, A-10s. Uh, and then it, it kind of branches out with a fast jet bit where you're looking at C-5 Galaxies and a B-52 bomber. Yeah, yeah. And, and a Goodyear blimp. A Goodyear blimp? Goodyear blimp over Los Angeles. That was quite exciting. Oh, no, um, no, we need to stop there. How did that one come about? Well, again, the great thing about Edwards, Edwards was quite um, unique at the time because... They'd had some poor years of not doing very much flying, sort of 90 odd hours. And on, on an average test pilot course, you only fly about 120 hours in the year because there's a lot of academics. So um, you don't do a lot to flying. But Edwards had had a very bad reputation. They had a new commandant in called Guy Gardner, who was an astronaut, actually. And uh, he decided he was going to change this and he was going to get people flying more. And also they were swapping over from their current school aeroplanes to their more modern. So they have things like A37s, A7s, F4s, and things like that as school aeroplanes. And they were changing over to F15s, F16s, and T30, and things like that. So we were in the in the year where they were doing this changeover. So, they, so uh, Guy Gardner decided that I would that this year, this particular year, we're going to do everything on both to see how it transitioned. So we we do the F4, for example, doing whatever it was, and then we do the same thing in the F15, and we do it in the A7, we do it in the F16, and so on. So we got a lot more flying for stuff, but we also got more tights because of that. But then he 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 quite rightly um, knew that the thing that a test pilot needs the most is the ability to get in and out of aeroplanes without thinking that's unusual. Because most pilots, you know, if you've if you're trained to fly a Cessna 152 and somebody offered you um, a 182, you'd expect to do some conversion of some description or some differences stuff or something. Yeah. Or if, somebody, if you went into a technum or whatever, you'd expect somebody to give you some training. Whereas the whole idea of the test pilot, of course, is what you're teaching the test pilot. Is you're teaching that person to be able to go into a prototype that's never flown before. So there isn't anybody to give you that training. So that's what that's what the training is all about, which is why it's so exciting. So what he decided was the most important thing was to give you lots of breadth, lots of experiences. And after about the first month, they brought in a new aeroplane every week for you to fly from the from the squadrons. So every week they would just bring an aeroplane in, all, all the pilots would fly it and you'd write a one page report. You know, it's good. It's bad. That was it. And it was meant to be just broadening. And that was fantastic. And the aeroplanes they brought in, I mean, the Goodyear Blimp was one. Okay, we had to go down to Los Angeles to fly the Goodyear Blimp. They didn't bring that in. But, but we flew all sorts. We flew the P3 Orion. We flew, um, 
we flew a Mustang like that. We flew a Harvard. We flew um, the A-10. You mentioned the A-10. The A-10 was just one flight. They brought it in, no simulator, no two-seater. They gave you the books the night before, and they said, in the morning, you're flying. So you'd work all night writing a kneeboard. You've seen my kneeboards I fly with. So yeah. I have a kneeboard. You write a kneeboard, and you work out all the, um, the good numbers, and you work out how to start it, because that's really embarrassing if you don't know how to start it, believe me. So you've got to work out how to start it. So you work out all that, and then that next day, there I was with the squadron, because it came from squadron. So a squadron pilot was giving me his aeroplane. I'd never flown before, never been in it. And he stood there on the steps to make sure I could start it okay. And that was it. And then I went off and not only did they allow me to fly the A-10, first sorted ever, you know, no sim, nothing. But they also gave me 200 rounds of HE ammunition and six bombs. <laughs> and I went to the range and I fired the most powerful gun in the world, the GAL-12. Um, having never been in that airplane before. And it, it was just bizarre. And to give you some example of how much fun that was, in the Harrier world, there was, well, in, in, in Europe, there was this thing, this thing called NATO qualification, which means that whatever you do, you have to prove every year that you are good enough to be NATO qualified. And of course, for the Harrier Force, that was going and shooting bullets and things. So we go to the range and you had to fire at this 20, uh, square foot 20 foot by 20 foot um white rag which has an acoustic counter and you have to to become nato qualified you have to get 20 percent hits so if you so it says if you were firing at a tank 20 percent of your bullets would hit the tank okay. that's that's what you and that's to become nato qualified now that was extremely extremely difficult in harrier because it was a very unstable airplane it was really really difficult and sometimes we every time we were doing this nato quad we would send crates of beer down to the uh, to the range to make sure that we got 20 percent because it was difficult <laughs> and some you know sometimes you may not have done but it's amazing how many people got exactly 20 percent but I'm, I'm not sure that had anything to do with the beer I'm, i i can't say it had anything to do with the beer but it may have done but so it was just so, a motive for you to hit the target that's all that was yes exactly <laughs> And, and but you used to go in to 600 yards to, to try and get closer that you couldn't miss. So you're flying at you know, 480 knots or whatever, diving down at this, uh, this uh, flag, and you go into 600 yards, it would be your, your final stopping point of shooting. And then you pull up as hard as you could because of the debris hemisphere of all the bullets flying off the ground. So you pull up really hard. So 600 yards, and think about that. So what's that? That's about um, 500 odd meters, isn't it? Or, yeah. or whatever. Um, now, when we went through the A-10, the A-10's got this gun that's got basically no dip on it. It's so powerful. You put it where you want it, you shoot, and it, and it hits. It's fantastic. And it's got a fantastic sighting system. It's probably too much to talk about now, but it's brilliant. It's absolutely awesome bit of kit. And so you get airborne in, in this thing. Now, you do feel quite vulnerable flying to the range if you're doing it in real, because you're only going to 240 knots, so half the speed of the area. And everybody can shoot at you, but you're in a titanium bath so that you've got a bit of protection. <laughs> so you, you you then go to the range. Now we we did the first opening at two miles. Whoa, two miles. So that's what's that? That's um, there's about six thousand feet, isn't it? So twelve thousand feet instead of six hundred yards, which is about yeah, eighteen hundred feet. So so almost nine, eight or nine times the distance out and we did one burst 
at two miles. We then pulled off, re repositioned, and opened again at a mile. And after my, depending on what, it's the first time I've ever flown this. Yeah. I got 98% hits. No way. 98% hits. Can you not just get nature qualified in that and then go back to the hour your squad? Yeah, exactly. Say, yeah, no, qualified. No, no, qualified. No, no, I'm all right. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's the sort of, so, so that, that was the great thing about the, um, the uh, and there was lots of things like that in, in the test pilot squad. And it, we were very lucky that we had Guy Gard and he was doing this transition. But we fly all, and the B-52 you talked about, I mean, I, I dropped bombs off the B-52. I air-to-air refueled the B-52. Now, that was interesting. I air-to-air refueled the C-5 Galaxy, which was even more interesting because that was even bigger. Uh, and we air-to-air refueled helicopters. We flew the S-60 um, helicopter and air-to-air refueled that. You know, it, the, the experience was phenomenal. And what it did, it gave me, definitely, that sort of feeling that I could... I could go into an aeroplane as long as I knew how to start it and how to adjust the rudder pedals, which is also a difficult one. So as long as you know how to adjust the rudder pedals and start it, you're going to be all right. I yeah. could go and fly the aeroplane without any real worry. And that, that, that has stood me in good stead because a lot of times when you go flight testing um, of aeroplanes, you might go with somebody else that might be flying that aeroplane. You've never flown it. Like, for instance, I did something for Virgin. Um, they put the Wi-Fi, you know, the big domes on the top for Wi-Fi, the yeah. big sort of scab-like uh, domes. They put those on aeroplanes. And um, when they did that, I did the air testing for them on the 330, 340, the 747. And um, when you get a modification like that, a normal licensed pilot, i.e. the guy that's got 16,000 hours on 747s, is not allowed to fly it because it, it's not compliant with a a legal aeroplane it's a modified aeroplane so you have to have a test pilot's flight so when they did that i'd never flown a 747 before in my life and so when we came to do the testing on that easa mandates that it has to be a test pilot a test pilot has to be pic so it has to be captain so here here we have this very strange sort of position where i flew with the fleet manager of 747 of virgin and he had 12, 18,000 hours or whatever it was on 7-4s. And I'd never flown the 7 ever. And I was captain. And he was in the right seat as my first officer. So, and then we went off and did this testing. And of course, you are in a, a very funny position there because unfortunately, you have to perform well. Yeah. Because otherwise, the guy in that seat is going to go, told you, guy's crap. You know. So you've got to perform really well. Now, luckily, testing because I've done so much testing, the test techniques are very similar. So if you're flying, you know, a one engine inoperative climb in any airplane, the techniques are very similar and people don't do enough of it to get good at it, but I do lots of it. So of course I practice it all the time. So when we're going off and doing this testing now in the 747, the guy just had wide eyes because he just couldn't believe that I was mid going through this very, very quickly, this testing, and just doing it as if I've, I've been flying the airplane for years. But it, it was a very short, it was a very narrow stovepipe, if you will, of, of activities. I was doing this a little bit. And of course, he'd never done that. So for instance, when we're, I, I said to him, we had to go, at, I can't remember what the max height is. I think it's 41,900 feet. Was it 43,900? Might be 43,900. It's the max operating altitude 747. And we, we had to go up to that because we were looking at um, 
mark effects on the, on the on this dome. And I said to him, I said, John, when was the last time you were 43,900 feet or 100 feet, whatever it was, in a 747? He said, never, <laughs> which was quite telling. So here you've got this test pilot. And of course, I went out to max speed. I went out beyond max speed. I came back towards the store, you know, and when I wanted to get from 35,000 feet down to 10,000 feet, I closed the throttles, put the air brake out and went down at 10,000 feet a minute. Well, he's never done any of that because when you're flying passengers with gin and tonics on, you're not going to do that. So that's where the test pilot is a little bit lucky. Even though he's never flown the airplane, he's more used to the environment. And that's where, that's, that's quite a challenge because as I said, what you can't do, it's a bit of smoke and mirrors actually. What you can't do is appear to be worse than he could do or her. You know, you, you, you've got to be doing as well as they're doing. Otherwise you get the, well, why are you doing it? Yeah. Well, I should be doing it. And a lot of people think, you know, I mean, you, you know, the world, a lot of people think a flight instructor should go and do things and this, and that. but they're, yes, they are experienced in, in some areas, but they're not experienced in, in risk reduction, in, in how to go from, you know, how to do that quickly, how, how to go beyond the limits, how to do this. They're not experienced in that. And nor is the normal line pilot or the normal yeah. pilot. So that's the whole idea of the test pilot course. That's why it's a year long. That's why they bring all these different airplanes in. That's why they, they put you into environments where you would never, never do. I mean, I, I had one, two F-15s. We were going up, you know, the Valkyrie, the big Valkyrie bomber that um, yes. crashed because the, I think it's a T-38, I think was, was following it. And it went through the Mark shock wave yeah. and it, it tipped up and hit the tail and everybody was killed. Now, that's a, that, in those days, that wasn't a known effect. But actually what happens is as you go past the, the shock wave, there's a boundary. And if you go, if you go, basically the shock wave pushes down on your airplane. So if you just put the nose into the shock wave, it'll push you down. But as you go past the center of lift, i.e. the pivot point, it, if you go beyond the pivot point, it then pulls you up. Yeah. So that wasn't known. But on the test pilot course, we took literally just just to see this. We took two F-15s up, up at sort of Mark 1.5, just going in and out of the shock wave, just to see it tip the nose down. And you were only allowed to go that far. You weren't allowed, obviously, to do the bit. So, but that was that was something that a normal pilot would never ever do. No. And that's why the test world is so exciting. And you know, for people that are coming up that may hear your podcast, I've I've done a bit on. On, on kids coming up through and coming into aviation. You know, the, the great thing about the aviation world, first of all, it's exciting in its own right. Just, just general flying is exciting. Career-wise, it's exciting and, and can be good. But if you can then go up into, into the more extremes like the test world, it's just outrageously exciting. The stuff that you get to do that you just can't imagine. And it, it really is really good fun. And that's why when you ask me about, um, you know, going from the squadron world, why did I want to go to the test world? It's for this. Yeah. It's for that extremeness. You know, I'll go fast because, you know, when you've got a max speed on an aeroplane, somebody else has gone faster because the test world has to go faster. Yeah. So obviously we go out 10% beyond the max speed and then we, we limit it. So there's no cliff edge to be found because what you don't want is somebody to go out to V&E, you know, 110 knots or 500 knots, depending which aeroplane you're in. You don't want somebody going out to that and then you go one knot beyond and there's a, there's a flutter cliff edge or whatever. Yeah. So the test world goes out 10% beyond all the limits. Wow. So every, every airplane that you've flown as a test pilot, 
you have flown more than somebody with 18,000 hours. You have gone to edges of the envelope they would never have gone to. And that's what's exciting for me. Is there an element of fear in that at all as well? Because Um, you're going where no one's gone before. Yeah. Well, we take, this is where teaching about risk mitigation. So so we do take a lot of um, precautions. Now, in in bigger airplanes, before you go out to beyond V&E, somebody would have done a lot of uh, computational fluid dynamics uh, analysis to make sure that we go out to 10% and they make sure that beyond 20% from a computational point of view, there's no flutter, for example. So that when you go out to 10% beyond, you shouldn't get flutter because somebody's uh, mathematically proven beyond. But of course, mathematics and real are different, which is why we only go out to 10%. But you'll also, when I do this, I'll also be wearing a parachute. I'll be wearing, we'll have an escape mechanism, we'll we'll be able to blow the canopy off. Uh, you know, I'll be wearing a helmet. So I, a lot of times in a little light aeroplane, like we, we fly, yeah. um, I'll go off in a little light aeroplane where somebody wear a headset like you're wearing now, and um, I'll have a parachute, I'll have a helmet on, um, I'll have a flight suit and I'll have gloves on. Yeah. Because if I need to get out, if something goes wrong with, with me spinning or it goes out, you know, in, beyond and I get flutter, the aircraft could be wrecked and I'd have to get out. Now, touch wood, touch wood, that, that hasn't happened to me too much. And, um, too I much. Well, I have had flutter. I've had flutter on occasions, which has destroyed the aeroplanes. And uh, luckily, I've been able to get them back on the ground. But, um, yeah, the, so, so, and another example, actually, is, um, you know, tiger moths. They've got spin straights on them. Now, if you, they have those spin straights, actually, for carrying bombs, which is what made it unstable. But when when they came into the civilian environment, you weren't allowed to spin these aeroplanes unless you had spin straights on. Now, I went, it's the CA, I was in the CA at the time, they would allow you to fly them without spin straights, spin straights on as long as CA test pilot had span tested it without the, the straights and shown it was all right. Now, I'd gone to fly this particular chipmunk and the guy said to me, like, I'll be honest, I'll, I'll span it loads of times without straights on. Um, so you don't need to wear a parachute and all that sort of thing. Because we were looking for parachute. I didn't have, for some reason, I didn't have mine. I'd left it at home. We were looking for parachute. And I said, look, I understand what you're saying, but you, you, you spin once in a blue moon. I spin every other day. Hmm. So my risk mitigation is I wear these things, even though you might tell me that it's perfectly acceptable. And it probably is. But my mitigation which hopefully is going to keep me alive is that i will always wear a helmet i'll always wear a parachute etc etc and i do that for i do that for times when i go out beyond the maximum speed limit and i do it whenever i spin so i always wear a parachute for those events yeah i've seen you fly with uh, with with your helmet on and everything i've never seen you come up with with, with the parachute before now yeah, well, it'll only be if it be if I'm going out to those extremes because, I mean, I suppose if you're doing the first flights, some people say you should wear a parachute right from the start. I was doing a first flight on an airplane the other day, and they said, "Well, you know, how do you know it's going to be all right?" And I didn't. But the trouble is, by the t- you can't use a parachute until you get to a few hundred feet. Yeah, and by then, it would have already broken up. <laughs> so this is the problem. So now you have to rely on. In the LEA world, for example, in LEA inspectors, you have to rely on your, you yourself. I mean, the most dangerous testing I do, to be honest, is LEA testing. 
really you know, light aircraft association testing and the reason is is because they haven't got a great big design team behind them you know when somebody's building um, a fred in their back garden or whatever there's nobody other than the lea inspector that's checking their work there's no yeah. big you go to cessna there's a whole design team you go to airbus there's a thousand people looking at making sure that's going to fly all right but of course when you go to the LEA world, there isn't. There's the guy that's built in and, and an inspector and you. So that's why, you know, I have to, I I have to have a look around it very carefully. I have to, you know, I've had to learn how to do that and take take um, advice from, you know, more experienced people like Francis Donaldson of the LEA. He's been a mentor for me in the LEA for the last 10 or 12 years and given me lots and lots of guidance. But so you have to go and you have to do these due diligence things, I suppose, yourself. Because you haven't got a big test team behind you. So the LEA stuff is probably the most dangerous testing I do. Wow. Really. Never really thought because, of it like that. Yeah. I mean, I go and fly an Airbus for the first time. To be honest, I, I never, ever think, I'll never, ever think that that might crash. Yeah. I mean, it might, but I, I never, ever go with the impression that it would crash. I go with the, with the impression I might find things that aren't, aren't right. Yeah. But that's different. Whereas when you go in an LA airplane for the first time, there's a definite, this could crash. Yeah. Because there's two things. There's the airplane might, um, who knows what it feels like. Okay, you've got an inspector that looks at it, but who knows. But the other thing that uh, is very different with, the, with this light aircraft world is who knows what the engine's going to be like. Because a lot of times they're uncertified engines. There might be a car engine. There might be this, there might be that. Um, who knows? Who knows? You know, they might have one ignition system rather than two. Um, there was one aircraft I flew recently. I won't say which it was, but I, I was lucky enough. A guy invited me to go flying it. It had a single ignition system. Um, about a week later, he was doing something behind the dashboard. And um, he, he must have dislodged this ignition wire to an extent. He got airborne. Um, Ten minutes into the flight, engine stopped, ignition, this wire had obviously come off. And he put it in the field and, and wrecked the airplane. He was okay, thankfully, but uh, wrecked the airplane. So that could have been my flight if he'd yeah. have been if he'd have been doing something on the uh, you know on on the instrument panel exactly as he did. It, it could have been my flight. Yeah. So I've actually witnessed you doing a circuit with a uh, I think it was surging a nine one two surging. Yeah. I'm going to say what aircraft yeah. it was. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. And just just watch you come in and everything. Cool as a cucumber. Back in land, it was like, yeah, we'll have a look at that. <laughs> well, once you've landed, you can be cool. You know what they say, you know, when, when in an emergency, if, if you are panicking in the, in the cockpit, when you come onto the radio, you've got to sound cool. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so and you, might be, you might be doing this in the cockpit. As soon as you transmit, yes, uh, this is me and this is what I'll do. <laughs> no, 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 this is me. So, yeah, you've got to, you've got to be cool. That's part of it. <laughs> I said that, that was part of the, uh, the test pilot school, was it? <laughs> it taught you how to be cool, even though you were panicking inside. Oh, brilliant. And just going back actually to the A10 for a second, I've heard a rumor somewhere that when you fire that gun, you actually fly, well, not fly, but you move forward in the seat from the force that that spitting bullet out. Is that true? You actually, you actually lose 50 knots of speed. Whoa. <laughs> the gun is so powerful you lose between 40 and 50 knots of speed. And yes, the whole aeroplane vibrates and you are in your seat because it is decelerating. And of course your body's going at, at 240 knots or whatever, your body's going, and then it's decelerating the aeroplane. So you are 
resting in your uh, in your straps. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I heard the rumor. I didn't actually think it was true. I, no, I, did, I definitely true. didn't. And, hear can, it and the other great thing. Yeah, forty-fifth dot. And the other great thing is you can smell the cordite in the cockpit. <sighs> so you go, you know, I won't say because it's a sexual thing. You, you think, this is awesome. And you, you smell this cordite, you think, yeah, this is the smell of freedom. <laughs> I can imagine that's one of them points where you're sat there thinking, I'm bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, real bad. So then yeah. you, you came out of the military because you talked about all the stuff with the LAA and, and stuff. I take it you, you took a job at the CAA, which I take it was a test pilot job as well then. Yeah. Is that how you ended up on the uh, Airbus A380 test pilot program? Yeah, the my job in the CAA was um, uh, certification test flying of new types. So when, by the time I got in, the UK used to do it in its own right in the old days. By the time I got in, we were part of the uh, JAA, you know, the uh, Joint Aviation uh, uh, Authority, I think it was called Joint Aviation Authority, JAA. So that was a club, really, because it wasn't a legal entity. And what, the, what used to happen is when a new airplane came out, you know, the, the 737 new generation or the Airbus 320 or whatever, a, a team from the JAA countries would get together. And it's normally the Brits and the French because we're the only people that had the main test teams. The Germans had the one person, so it was occasionally German. So we would then go as a team, two test pilots normally, two, in, two flight test engineers, two cabin uh, people, two hydraulics people, two undercarriage people, et cetera. We would then, um, as a team, certify this airplane. And in the JAA days, we would then recommend to all the countries that they took it into law, that they had a certificate of airworthiness. Then it moved on to EASA, you know, the European Airworthiness Safety Agency. And now it became a legal entity. So it's not a club anymore. So, but again, they took people from the national authorities, like the Brits and the French generally, to work on their behalf. And we would then certify as part of EASA. And then once we'd, we'd said, yes, we're happy with 380, um, for example, then all other nations that were in Arsa automatically had certified it because it was now a legal entity, not, not a club. So, so my whole time in the CA, which was 11 odd years, was all certifying new aeroplanes or new modifications to aeroplanes for Europe. So that's what I would do. So my very first type, um, was the A330-200, which was a short, shorter A330. So I went to Toulouse, spent a lot of time in Toulouse in my 11 years, obviously, because Airbus was our, our biggest manufacturer. Um, and we certified that for the JAAs, it was then. My next one was the 737 New Generation. So the 6789 and BBJs. Um, so I went over to Seattle, spent a lot of time in Seattle with a French guy. Uh, you know, we had two pilots, two, two engineers, and we went over as a team and we, we did what it's called, when we're doing another authority, we validated. So they, they would do the certification, if you will, and then we would go and spot check their certification, do a mini uh, exercise and call it a validation. So we'd validate by not doing everything, not repeating everything they'd done. We'd rely on what they did and we just did a selection to make us happy. Yeah. And that's, that's what I did for the end years. But it was right from... You know, BizJet, so I did, um, I went out to Brazil to do Embraer 145 work. I went out to Dassault to do the 900, 2050 and all sorts of things there. Um, but also I went out to Russia to do, they were fitting a, a, an English cockpit and Rolls-Royce engines to the Tupolev 204. 
Wow. So I went out and did the Tupolev 204 testing out in Russia, which was probably the best test campaign I'd ever done because it was fantastic fun. It was a very unusual environment, as, as we now know from what, what's happening at the moment. But it was a very unusual environment. The people were brilliant. But they, their, their whole certification basis, their whole requirements had grown in a different way to ours, to, our, to the Western world. So, so they did things very differently. They got the same result, but they did things very differently. In some areas, they were much, much better than we were. In some areas, we were much, much better than them. So it, it was a really good cross-fertilization of, of different people's thought processes. And, um, and they were socially fantastic. I mean, it really was brilliant. So, yeah, I really enjoyed the Russian stuff. But we went all over the place and, and did certification for Europe. So wow. it was very exciting. And that's why, you know, going back to, to uh, that's why I'd flown really so many types, because as a CA test pilot, you just flew anything. And, I, and because of my light aircraft uh, passion, Bob Cole was the um, light aircraft test pilot at the time. But my job was 10% light aircraft. So I could double up for Bob and I could be a second center of uh, you know of knowledge if he wanted to talk about it and when he was on holiday i would do it so so i i did the light aircraft stuff and and most of the vintage stuff because i was bob wasn't that vintage so i was vintage so anytime sea vixen for example i did and hunters and things like this i did all of those um but i but my main job was the sort of bigger airplanes so from the biz jets up but because of this passion and this ability to convince the ca that i ought to uh, you know be a seconder I, I was lucky enough to do everything all the way through and in fact i even did some some stuff for francis while i was in the ca i did the uh, the petrol which was a little light amphibian french and uh, he asked me to on behalf of the ca uh, ca to, we we had oversight of the laa so he wanted me to have a look and that's the first time i met francis which then set up this friendship for later so yeah, it was great. Um, fantastic, fantastic time in the LA. Probably, probably to be fair, probably the best test pilot job in the world, without really? doubt. But unfortunately, there isn't there isn't a flight test department now in the, in the CA. But at the time, it probably was because the military stuff was good, but it's very rare you did really high risk stuff. Whereas we were doing high risk stuff all the time. You know, a lot of the testing was if you'd have lost the other engine, you'd have crashed. Yeah. It was high risk. And there were so many types and it was all over the world and and it really really was very exciting and I, I honestly believe it was the best test job in the world awesome and is that how you got into um flying spitfires and stuff and um, no no spitfires um was very strange actually I, I when i came back from the test pilot school um i was lucky enough I, i'd flown the harvards or t6s as they call them over there and I'd flown, I'd, um, again, another funny story. I, as part of the course, you did the main project, which unlike at Boscom, Boscom do a big preview, as they call it, which is two weeks, where you go off and you test an airplane. Um, that's a normal airplane, you know, whatever it may be. And you test it for a, a pseudo different role, et cetera. And you do a two week thing and then you write a big report and et cetera. The, the, the USAF did it very differently. They had all their issues within the USAF. And they would tell the test pilot school what these particular issues were. And then you would do a full real project in three months. You go through all the safety boards, everything. And it's a real project. And whatever you came up with in the end could be put on to the 
to the uh, frontline airplanes. And in, in mine, it was an F-16 uh, Lantern, which was, you know, the old uh, laser thing. They were having lots of problems with that, killing people and all this sort of stuff. So we worked out some cues to help them. And uh, so we went through a full three-month program. It's still big, big, uh, well, presentation and a big report, but it was a massive, massive exercise. And, and that, our, what we came up with was actually put onto the frontline airplanes. So it was a very different way they did it. It was brilliant. But then they did, they, they then did a little project towards the end where they went TDY, you know, they went uh, holiday, you know, on holiday, you know, detached somewhere and they used to call it TDY. And, um, but so they, they all got a little airplane, which is just a week normally. And they'd go somewhere for a week, do a little project and then come back. But it was, it was just an excuse really to get people to go, go around the place. And so they thought it was very funny for me. This is where the uh, the airplane came in. Very funny for a single seat, single engine pilot to go and fly the B fifty two. You see, <laughs> so that's where this B fifty two flying that I did came in. And but the problem with it was the B fifty two was at the the B fifty two flight test centre at Edwards. So I went to I went to the commandant. I said I said this is a bit unfair. I'm I'm a guest on your test pilot course, you know, a Brit. I'm a test, I'm a test, you know, I'm a guest here. And you've sent everybody TDY to nice exotic places. And you've said, you, me, I'm staying Edwards. So he said, hmm. He went, hmm. That's very true. He said, uh, where do you want to go? So, so, of course, we're on, obviously, West Coast. So I said, well, actually, I'd like to go to um, Orlando, go to Kissimmee, and fly the P-51. Oh, so wow. Said, right, off you go. So it was me and an instructor, we were detached over, over to Orlando to go and do a, a little spin program, which, I mean, when do you spin, you know, big warbirds? Nobody spin, spins big warbirds, not in this country. And I went over and we did a spin program on, a, on the P-51. And we arrived in Orlando, obviously hot and fantastic. And of course, we first, straight away, me and the instructor, we got a convertible car, a Mustang, obviously. So we then turn up in this convertible. We're not really on holiday. We're here to do a proper job. And um, so then we did some test flying of this. And then he said, uh, 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 so, and actually we, we got finished in, in about two days, two and a half days. Right. So I said, oh, what are we going to do for the rest of the time? So he said, well, again, this was the instructor. said, what do you want to do? I said, well, Eglin is just a short flight away and they've got F-111s up there. Perhaps we can go up and fly the F-111. So he made a phone call back to me. Yeah, go on, off you go. And it, so we went to fly the F-111, you know, supersonic at low level, fantastic. So that's that's how all these things happen. It's just so, yeah. That's that that's the fun of it, really. That was so cool because I've I've actually you talk about it. I've I've seen you like fly because I I think you're Beacon Hill's chief pilot, if I've heard correctly. Mm. Oh, that um, was it. That was the, spit the heritage hangar. Yeah. And uh, I've I've been very very lucky to fly beside one of your spits in the uh, air van that you guys got up there, yeah. and I actually yeah. witnessed yourself. You talk about jumping into different airplane stuff. I've witnessed yourself get into a P forty Warhawk, get out of that, into a Spitfire, into a different Spitfire, into the only two C Hurricane in the world, back to the Spitfire, and this went on for time. And I just sat there amazed that, that you could jump from these different airplanes the whole time. Well, the only the only way I can do that is. Um these knee boards that we've talked about that I've got for these airplanes. And they're a very set format. And they're exactly the same format for every airplane. So they have the maximum speed, they have the maximum G, they have, you know, what the takeoff speed is going to be, what the climb speed is going to be, what the landing speed is going to be, all in exactly the same place. 
and the checks are all exactly all all identically laid out and it acts as a memory chip and basically if i haven't got that kneeboard i can't fly the airplane really? well anyway i can't fly it well anyway or efficiently um so what the kneeboard does and this goes back to this training if you were hopping in and out of airplanes that this guy did for us you know 25 years earlier at edwards or 30 years earlier at edwards where he got you jumping in and out of airplanes and so you have to find a you have to find a mechanism to allow your brain to fly the right airplane and for me everybody does different for me it's these kneeboards and what it does i mean i i flew we've recently um had the mustang up at uh, biggin as you know we've got the new two-seat mustang yeah. up at biggin now i went and flew it the other day and my first trip was going off and doing formation flying with the air van because they wanted pitch and all this sort of stuff. And I hadn't flown a Mustang for 27 years. Wow. But I got the kneeboard. I got it. It, did, it was just like I flew it yesterday. Wow. Because, and the reason I, can, reason I can do that now as a test pilot is because I've got this kneeboard. So that, that works with my brain. It sort of seems to open up my brain. But the other thing, of course, is we're going back you were going back to experience and and breadth i've flown a lot of airplanes that fly like a mustang i've flown a lot of airplanes that fly like an a380 or 747 i've flown a lot of airplanes that fly like a uh, a c42 or a, a dasso so when you get into those airplanes it's it, it you know benulis is benulis you know uh, science is science it's not it's not magical as long as you're happy that you don't know the absolute fine detail of you know how many bits of wood has it got in the in the fuselage or something yeah. stupid so as long as you and as long as you can take that, that spitfire flying versus hurricane as you said versus mustang versus p40 they all fly very similar okay the, the spitfire's got a very narrow and the carriage the p40's got a beautiful one and the mustang's got a beautiful one and the hurricane's got a beautiful one so you, you've got to think about crosswinds more in a spitfire yeah but the general in and out of it isn't too difficult because I'm relying on other stuff. So when we flew the 747, I'd flown the 380, I'd flown a 777, and I'd flown a 737 and, and etc. So when I got into the 74, okay, I, I had the books and I, I'd done a kneeboard as well, but it wasn't alien. You know, the mass wasn't alien because I'd flown a 380. The, the Boeingisms weren't alien because I've flown several other Boeings. So it wasn't alien. So when I, when I got in to fly it, all I needed to know was the numbers. Yeah. And I got those from the book. Do you know what I mean? So th yeah. that's why you can do that. It's because, and you, you know, you're flying, starting to fly lots of different types now, and they're not too dissimilar. No. You've just got to know the numbers. And the numbers for me is this kneeboard. So as long as I've got a kneeboard, tells me the numbers. I'm all right. So I was, I was very lucky to have introduced yourself to the, to the C42. And I even remember you had a kneeboard in that as well. Um, and that yeah. was just a quick, quick spin around the, around the patches to say. Um, and it was, it was great to see. And that's when I, I first got a proper look at, at the kneeboard that, that, that you had for the aircraft you were testing that day. Um, yeah. Also, and like you said, it had absolutely everything on it, except for how many bits of water in the fuselage. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, it was really, really cool. But you've mentioned loads of types in, in everything that we spoke about we've mentioned tons of different types and i believe you have your sights on two different records at this moment of time and one of them is 
Eric Winkles Brown types record, uh, which um, is, I think he, he sits about 486 types. Um, and the other one is types and marks, uh, which I think you said you've done about 700 if, if you include them. Um, well, at what point did you decide I I want to do I want to do this record? Um, it it came about completely again uh, by accident to some extent. When when Eric died, um, some people I was with said, almost as a side throwaway, said you must be pretty close. And I'd never really thought about it until then. And um, because Eric Winkle is one of these, I mean, I've met Eric, I'm, you know, he's one of those um, colorful people. He's a very good talker. He's written very good books. Um, he's got skills that are just fantastic from that point of view. So he's very good, you know, at putting him over because he's, he's a good person and an he was an interesting person, very interesting to talk to. His yeah. stories were wild, et cetera, et cetera. So it was all, all great fun. And um, so I'd never really thought about it. He, he was, he was in, obviously in the war period, which was his, his um, position to get lots of different types. Um, again, being in the right place at the right time to some extent, but then obviously having all the skill sets that we talked about before to be able to do what he did. And um, so I, at the time, had, um, well, for many years, I had a computer logbook, which gives me, uh, it's only in Excel and it, I've got pivot table and it just puts it. So I started looking at this and actually I wasn't that many away. And that was the first time, we're only talking of two or three years really. So that was when it, it came up. And, um, and I, I then thought about it and thought, do you know what, actually, it's something great, isn't it? To do something like that, really. And as a test pilot, it, it's one of those things. Um, I've been very lucky because my my range, I suppose, is a bit different than his. His mainly were, were World War um, II types with a few peripherals. Mine, of course, is it goes from Blerio to A380 um, and everything in between. So I've, I've been lucky because of the job and I suppose the modern world and my vintage interest has sort of overlapped him obviously i haven't got anywhere near as many as he's got in in the second world war period etc but i've got a good overlap yeah but i've been lucky enough to to be able to do some of these others you know interesting airplanes so i think i haven't quite got the stories he's got i haven't i didn't turn up in finland or wherever it was in his cub and two thousand germans um you know surrendered to him because it, he was told that it was in our hands and it wasn't and they surrendered to him in, in his cub you know, I haven't got stories like that. I've got a few good stories, but they're not that sort of amazing stories like he's got. Um, but the reality is, I, I think I'm either very close or there. And it goes really, the, the, the important thing is, is how Guinness look at what, you, what types you've got. Now, we, uh, as you know, Eric was very, um, one of his big things was he'd flown 10 different marks of Spitfires, whatever it was, and he called it one Spitfire. Um, but I, I, as we've discussed previously, he also had the Harvard and the T6 as two. Now I had those as one until I, until somebody told me that he had those as two. Yeah. And now I, I've separated them out in my computer logbook, but I'd originally had those as two because I, as, as one side, because I thought, well, they're exactly the same, really. So it, it depends. Now I, because I've got these big aeroplanes, it depends how they look at those. Because I've got, you know, the, uh, the Boeing 737, for example, 
I've got two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Now I've put those as separate types because within each of those types, like the, um, the 737-800, for example, there's probably 50 different 800s. So that's where I think the marks run. Yeah. But Guinness might say, no, 737-737, which I think would be extremely unfair because it had even had different wings and all this. So I think it'd be extremely unfair. Um, and in, in Eric's day, there weren't, there weren't, okay, the Spitfire, you know, one or whatever to 21, whatever it was, they were very different, but there, there weren't that many marks of things that had great differences. Whereas in, in today's world, because of the way aircraft are developed, there are, I mean, there's, there's probably several hundred, if not more, probably 500 different 737s. Wow. So there are marks within what I've called types. But if, 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 if Guinness say no, then I could lose seven types there. In, in my in my parlance so um i'm not going to declare yet i'm not going to go and speak with guinness and uh, i don't know how they'll react i don't know what i'll have to do to prove things so it could be quite a long-winded process so I, what i'd like to do is spend another year getting another 20 or 30 times so that when i do go even if they take 20 off me then i hopefully i'll still have passed the record yeah, but, I think at uh, the moment you've you've got four hundred and ninety um, different types, as to say. Uh, of, of that's aircraft. what I think. That's what I think. Yeah, with with my labelling of types, and I've, I, as I say, I've been, as I say, I've probably flown um, fifty to seventy seven three sevens. Yeah, type uh, marks, but I have just uh, put them all into the, the 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 main number, the six seven eight nine hundred. You know. Uh, um sort of type if you will of 737 and the but yes interesting it, it's really cool because if you go by that now it means that you've you've technically broken his record if guinness were to if guinness were to accept your logbook now and these numbers were right you would have broken his record by far which is absolutely yes. amazing yes <laughs> what yeah. what a what what a, what a feat that, that that would be and then if the types are marks has anyone ever done that before? Has that has that been a thing? Or I don't you... I don't think so, but I think um I think that's an area where it would be very clear cut because we've talked about before about the jobs that I've been lucky enough to have. I mean the, the military test pilot job was was um the last of that type of military test pilot to some extent because later now, for instance, if you're if you're a test pilot in the Air Force now, you'll be a typhoon test pilot, you'll go to test pilot school, you might fly 10 or 12 different types of test pilot school now. And then you'd go back to a squadron, you'd be a typhoon test pilot. Whereas when we did it, we had a test squadron and we flew everything. So I flew, you know, I did the, for Gulf War One, I did the Jaguar um, helmet mounted sight and laser, laser bomb stuff. So I did all the development for that or did the first laser guided bomb drop from a Jaguar. I did the helmet some, with other team, um, with other guys as well. I did some of the helmet mounted sights stuff. Um, we did stuff for the tornado, we did stuff for the cameras, we did stuff for hunters, we did stuff. So, and we did BAC 111s and Andovers. And so we did all sorts, whereas you don't do that now. So that was the first bit. Um, then I've been very lucky in the vintage world. I've found lots and lots of different sites in the vintage world. And then in the CA, something like 300 types I flew in the CAA alone. Um, and, and then within those types, there's all these marks, like 737s that we talked about. So, Without doing the CAA job, I think it would be very difficult for somebody to get that many times. Unless you were a billionaire and you just decided you wanted to go and do it, 
um, it would be very difficult. And even then, you couldn't fly some of the types that we've been looking at fly. You could fly more types, probably. Yeah. But um, you, the the job that nailed it for me, if you will, was a, was the CEA job, and that job is no longer there. And there's there's no such similar job because although the the Americans have um, the regulator test pilot job, they tend to be you know the Seattle um, office which flies Boeing's. Yeah. You know, then you'll go to um, Wichita office, which will fly the BizJet stuff that's at Wichita. You know, so you don't, there's not a lot of cross pollination goes on. You tend to be more static. Whereas we, in the CA days, and because I flew all the GA as well, and the vintage and stuff, we just flew, I flew 50 or 60 types a year, uh, some years, which you just can't do elsewhere, else in, in a similar job. There isn't out there. So I think that's, I think the types and marks one, I would, I can't see how that would, anybody would have done more than that in today's world. So I think that should be a pretty safe record, Brilliant. if you will. Um, but the types one, I'm, I'm a little bit more nervous of simply because I don't know what Guinness will accept. Yeah. And uh, I could easily be 20 below instead of four above. Yeah. So um, that's why, you know, I, I, you know, there's lots of people down at places you fly at Dean Thorpe, a couple of nice airplanes down there that people are uh, hopefully going to let me fly. And people have let me fly quite a few at Dean Thorpe and Kitty, Kitty Hawk and places like this. Um, Dean Land, sorry, and, uh, and Kitty Hawk and places like this. So, and then there's a great bunch of people at Spano. And, and there's a lot, there's, there's a, I, ha I haven't really, this is the first time I suppose we've publicized it to some extent on your your podcast oh, well an exclusive because, no it is an exclusive <laughs> and and I, I i get very embarrassed by this i i don't really want to i don't want to go into one of the magazines or something because the brits again it goes back to this brit mentality the brits don't like that sort of thing and it, it's it's been great because there's been about 10 or 15 people that have been really helpful in in my quest if you will and you know we've, we've had uh, um, you know Martin down at, uh, at Deanland and the guys at Kitty Hawk and then the Spanho guys. Uh, there's, there's a great bunch. I've got a great bunch of people in, in Czech Republic that um, have have had an open day for me to go and fly types. You know people have flown in just for me to fly types. And in fact, in, in one in one um, uh, twenty no, it's about sixteen hour period. I flew twenty four types. Wow, in 16 hours. In 16 hours, yeah. Whoa, that's nearly yeah. a record in itself. Well, who knows? But uh, but yeah, so it's been, and, and it's been, I've been very lucky. I've had some great, great people that have got behind me um, as friends, as mates, really, and, um, and looked after me. And uh, I, there's been some really good stuff, good stuff going on. It's been really exciting. And it's nice as well, because you tend, you know, the airfields that we're flying from, it, it tends now to be you go and have a cup of tea, you're going to have some biscuits, you know, and you then go flying. It's beautiful. You know, you're on a grass airfield somewhere and it's just great. So it's great. Yeah, 100%. I think one of the contrasts is talking about with Deanland. Um, we based a couple of airplanes at Shoreham over the winter while Deanland was a bit soggy. And yeah. now that Deanland's dried up lovely and everything like that, we're back at Deanland and there's more of an atmosphere there. Oh. I was down there yesterday yeah. and the atmosphere is amazing compared to like at Shoreham where it's all very... I like Shoreham, but it's all very corporate and businessy and yes. stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's that sort of, um, it's, it's just a, a, a group of like-minded people, really, 
flying airplanes, isn't it? Places like Deanland, Kitty Hawk and Spanho and, and the, little air, the little grass strips around. They're, it's just pure aviation, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. not commercial. I mean, obviously there are commercial elements of obviously Deanland, but it's not, it doesn't feel commercial. It feels like a group of people that just want to go flying, which is why it's great. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, the things that I love about like proper grassroots and stuff like yeah. that. It's, yeah. And to, to top it off, Dan, we spoke a load on this, and I, I'm sure that there's plenty more that, that we could sit here and chat about all day. But I asked you this question back in October, and honestly, is the answer still the same? Out of everything that we've spoken about today, we've named mountains and mountains of, of different kinds of aircraft. But what was, say, your favourite aircraft that you've flown? Now, I know... I know back when we spoke we said the b-52 but but the reality the truth of the answer is that there are many and the great thing about having flown a lot of tides is that you you can't you can't shoehorn that question into one type you just can't because you know the harrier was a phenomenal airplane the b-52 was great fun the a-10 was great fun the blerio i was very excited to fly that was fantastic from the history point of view. The Spitfire is fantastic from the history point of view. Uh, I was lucky enough to fly the thrust vectoring F-18. Oh, wow. Now that was, if, if it is any one trip, just one trip, rather than one aeroplane, it would have been that trip because that was just wild. But, you know, it, I, I flew Mike Whitaker's plank. I don't know whether you've seen that, the MW7. Um, and hopefully I'm going to do some more testing on that. Um, now that was a, you know, a, literally a flying plank it's a you know tailless airplane wild so yeah f-15 actually was a great great airplane as well that that, that i wasn't expecting the f-15 a very short finishing story really i when i when i went out to edwards i i knew i was going to fly the f-15 the f-16 but i really wanted to fly the f-16 because it looks fantastic and you know you can look macho in it and all that sort of stuff so i really wanted to fly that but actually i was extremely disappointed with the f-16 really it was it was a toy that was it was a little bit unstable. It wasn't particularly good. It, it was fun, and uh, but it wasn't the wow that I was expecting. Yeah. And I've never really thought the F-15, and the F-15 was the wow that I wasn't yeah. expecting. So the F-15 was a fabulous airplane, absolutely wow. fantastic airplane. Really, really enjoyed it. But, you know, it, the, there are so many great... I mean, I like some of the, um, the C you know, the uh, float plane type stuff as well. So it just doesn't really, it, it is a very difficult question, actually. And there's probably 10 favourite aeroplanes, if you know what I mean, not one. Yeah. Because they're, they're in different roles. And it, it's, it would be so unfair to pick one aeroplane. It would. Yeah. It's, 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 it's easier for me, like, like myself has flown, I don't know, a maximum of, of, I don't know, eight or nine, ten types. Whereas yeah. yourself, with everything, the numbers that we spoke about here, I suppose trying yeah. to categorise nearly 800 airplanes into, into one question is, uh, is, is quite, yeah. like you said, really difficult and you can't shoe on it into that one thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the 380 was fantastic as well. That's one I had left out of that list. That was a brilliant aeroplane. From a pilot's point of view, great Really, it flew like a, a fighter. It was just fantastic. Wow, fantastic! Which you, which is what you can do, of course, with um, with flight controls. You know, with um, you know, uh, with uh, you know, a computerized airplane that you can't do. You can't. It's very difficult to make another airplane as big as the A380 fly like a 380 
without having a fly-by-wire computer system because it, it you can tailor it so well you can you can change the gauge you can do this you can do that and i mean it flew better than the than the a320s really it was phenomenal fantastic up until then my previous previous favorite big airplane was a c5 which also flew beautifully but the 380 was far nicer far wow nicer. Well, so not it that. depends. It depends what you're asking. You've got to bound. <laughs> you've got to bound it a little bit. <laughs> That's brilliant, Dan. I thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute yeah. pleasure to have you on on today, and uh, thank you for for talking to us. Don't forget. The only thing I will say for my because uh, I am, as you know, on my Instagram, I am trying to put a bit of a test blog together. Yeah. So when I um, when I go and test fly airplanes, I try to put a little little bit on there each time. So if people are interested in test flight or they want some help with what they're doing with their aeroplanes, get in touch with me on, uh, on Instagram. It's um, Dan underscore Griffith underscore test pilot or test underscore pilot. So please come and, uh, and follow and just watch what we're doing because it's interesting. There's some wacky types on there, as you know. Um, hopefully I'll get a better camera sometime, perhaps get one of these Insta 360s so that uh, I can get some better better video. But I think that's what we used as an excuse to go for the circuit, really, was to go and test the camera out, insert air quotes. <laughs> it was, it was. But they, it, but do go and look at it, because there's some interesting airplanes, and um, the, the, hopefully what I'm trying to do is get a, a place where anybody can ask questions or, you know, uh, message me and ask about test flying and what they're doing with their airplanes and, I'll try to give them advice or if they want it, I'll even come and help. So mm -hmm. please come and please come and look. That's the whole idea of it. I, as you know, I do all my little aircraft stuff basically for free. I, you know, I, I'm the chief, you know, you mentioned the chief test pilot of the LAA. I do that for free. I don't get paid for that. Wow. Um, so I look at the light aircraft stuff as my, my give back to the great um, stuff that aviation has done for me. So I'm trying to give a little bit of that back. And that's what this, Instagram uh, blog is really all about. That's amazing. Dan, thank you so much.